Let's go to God in prayer and ask God's blessings on our time today. Father, we thank you and bless you for your word. We pray now that the good seed of your word will find good soil in our hearts so that that seed can germinate and result in changed living. We bless you. We give you glory and honor for all that you have done, all that you are doing, all you will do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let all of God's people say amen. One of the amazing scenes in a sporting event is actually what takes place before the game or the contest even starts. It's the shot on the sideline or maybe in the locker room of people praying, asking God to bless them in that game. Now, let's be honest. When you pray before a game, you praying, asking God to bless you with a win. You're not praying saying, Lord, please, Lord, let me play today and help me be a better man or a better woman. I want to come out of this game being a better person, even if it takes a loss to get me there. You want to win. And what's interesting to me is there are people on both sides who are both praying to win. But here's what's interesting. While people pray to win a game, many people don't pray to win in life. We, we don't pray like we should. For God to teach us what it takes to win at life. We want to win a game. In high school, I wanted to win our Christmas tournament championship game. You know how many people remember that we won that game? That I was the MVP or even care? If I live long enough, there'll be a time I won't remember <laughs> that I won the game, right? Championships come and go and Time fades memories. But do we pray to win in life? There's a man in our text by the name of Jehoshaphat. Some of you may have heard that name and thought it was made up. I remember as a boy watching cartoons and hearing one of the characters says, jump in Jehoshaphat. Yeah. I had no idea Jehoshaphat was actually a real person. He's a king. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, he has some enemies that are banded together and are coming against he and the people of Israel. Best case scenario, they're going to put him into slavery. Worst case, they're going to erase him from the planet of earth. And Jehoshaphat is facing this tough situation and he's got to decide what he's going to do. Now, what do most people do when they face a difficult time? Maybe the better question is, what do you do? Right? We are told typically there are two responses. Flight or fight. Folk run, get away, and if I can't run or get away and I got to fight, then the fight is on. 
But Jehoshaphat teaches us as a child of God, we have a third option. Flight, fight, or move in faith. And today I want to help somebody to explore that third option, an option that you may not have looked at in the past. Today I want to talk about how to pray your way to a win. How to pray your way to a win. And we're not talking about a win in a game. We're talking about a win in life. If you have your outlines, would you say amen? Amen. If you need an outline, raise your hand and the ushers will get one to you. Two things I want you to see today in part one of this message that I hope will really inspire you to move from flight or fight to become that person of faith that God is calling you to be. Here's the first thing. Number one, if you're going to pray your way to a win, you should stop being surprised when enemies rise against you. You should stop being surprised when enemies rise against you. Second Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. These three groups have come together to form this coalition against the people of God. You've heard the saying, my enemy's enemy is now my friend. These folk who, in some instances, would have been fighting each other, now turn around and create this coalition to come against the people of God. And it's interesting to me because as you read the text, there is nowhere in the text where we are told why they come together or why they want to come against the people of God. And I began to ask and I began to pray and I'm saying, okay, Lord, why would you not tell us why they came together? And I can hear the Holy Spirit saying to me, because you won't always know why people are against you. See, what I've discovered is sometimes people come against you because you did something wrong. Sometimes people are against you because there's something wrong with them. And you don't have to do anything for some folk to have an attitude. Folk will get mad at you and come against you without invitation, explanation, or provocation. Just because there's something in them that is not feeling good about you. These folk come against Jehoshaphat. They they are planning and and they are putting their their, their devilish plan into effect. Now, one of the things I want to help you do is define an enemy. Uh, Because sometimes I think we too loosely assign the enemy title to people. So write this down somewhere. Uh, Enemies are anyone or anything 
that work against you coming to know or grow in the Lord. Anyone or anything that works against you coming to know or grow in the Lord is an enemy. And the reason I want to define enemy in that way is because many of us misdefine it. And so we identify some people as enemies that are really just tools in the hand of God. Like we say, oh, they, they don't like me. They're my enemy. Man, God just may be using them for a season to teach you a lesson. It's not intended to be a lifetime ban. It may just be a momentary usage by the devil, but ultimately it's intended for our good, our growth, and God's glory. Look at Matthew 5, beginning at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, we want the blessings of God. We just don't want the burdens of dealing with people. We don't want the tough times of dealing with people. We like what comes on the other side of the issue. We just don't want to deal with the issue itself. We like the product of growth. We don't like the pain that's necessary in growth. I don't know about you, but like most people, when I was younger, I wanted to be taller. I wanted to be taller because in high school, my first year in high school, I was like five, nine. And, and man, I, I just prided myself on being a great basketball player, right? And I, I wanted to grow. I wanted to get tall, you know. Um, I didn't realize when you get tall, you, you get into plus sizes and then you got to spend more money to be tall, right? Got to pay for extra leg room on planes and stuff like that, you know. But I wanted to be tall. And, and I remember, and we used to, wait, come on, me, you used to pray. You'd be like, man, I want to be taller. I want to be taller. God make me taller. And then I remember I had this, this season after my first year in high school, I had, I had crazy pains in my knees and in my back. And my mother took me to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, he's, he's going through a growth spurt. And I said, growth spurt? Yeah, he's, 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 about, to, he's about to grow. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> about to grow. But wait a minute, what about these growing pains? And I learned then that growth requires pain. You can't grow without pain as your body elongates. You are going to experience some pain. Child of God, the same thing is true for you. You're praying, asking God to help you to grow in him. And God says there's some growing pains. You got to go through some tough times. You have to go through some difficulties in order to grow. Look at Romans 8, 28. I love this rendition of verse 28 that the ESV gives us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if I said read it, most of you would recite it. Because you memorized it 
all things work together for the good. But when I say read it, he says, and we know that those who love God, because he starts with the premise, you got to love God. Most start with all things. And they haven't gotten to loving God right, right first. When you love God, you recognize that all things work together for your good. Let me give you the second thing, and I'm going to let you go. We're talking about how to pray your way to a win. Number two, you must be ready to meet the inevitable challenges coming into your life. You must be ready to meet the inevitable challenges coming into your life. Somebody in here, stop being surprised when challenges come. They're coming. If they haven't come yet, keep on living. They come in a variety of shapes, sizes, and ways. But challenges are going to come. They're going to come in terms of your head, in terms of a troubling mind. They're going to come in terms of your heart, in terms of relationships or broken love. They're going to come in terms of your home, in terms of your family and what's going on there. They'll come in terms of your personal health, your body just breaking down because you're getting older. Challenges are going to come. Are you ready to meet the challenges that are coming your way? Look at verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 20. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Can, can you do me a favor? I want you to underline verse 4, seek help from the Lord. End of verse 4, seek the Lord. Now, look at A. First thing I want you to know, fear is real. Fear is real. The A part of verse 3 says... Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. When? When he got word that these three groups were coming at him. He was afraid. Now, one of the things you have to always look at when you're defining a word is this context. Right? Those of you who are English majors, those of you who read, you understand the value of a context clue. For example, if somebody says to you, maybe your grandchild or your child, what, the word, what does the word trunk mean? You're going to ask them, read it in a sentence. Because a sentence is going to give you what? Context clue. So if the word trunk is used in a sentence, the elephant moved the log with his trunk, it means one thing versus the family got ready to travel and they put a suitcase in the trunk. Are you with me? This word is dependent, heavily dependent upon its context. When it's used in reference to God, it speaks to reverence and respect. But when it's used in this kind of context, it's really referring to a kind of debilitating fear that's the result of feeling threatened by somebody. Uh, th this fear of a battle that is on the way. 
this fear of being defeated, this, this fear of being uh, torn apart. The Bible says Jehoshaphat was afraid. He was fearful. And if you have never been afraid, just keep living. Fear is coming. For somebody, it's going to be a fear of being young. For somebody, it's going to be a fear of getting old. For somebody in here, you, you may be afraid to die. But there's a whole generation of people who are afraid to live. Some people are afraid to succeed. Others are afraid to fail. But the one thing that fear has in common amongst all people, fear can be paralyzing. Fear can be debilitating. More people don't do anything because of fear than anything else. It's not the reality of what has happened. It's the fear of what might happen. You know why there are so many fear knots in the Bible? Because fear is real. And God knows how debilitating fear can be. And see, when you come up with a plan and, and you lay it out and what you're going to do and fear shows up, all plans go out the window. Uh, that, that pugilistic pontificator, Mike Tyson, said everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? All plans are gone once you get punched in the mouth. So when somebody says you're afraid, don't, don't minimize that. Recognize it. Because watch this. It's only when you recognize your fear that you can manage your fear and begin to move your fear over into the realm of faith in God. As long as you deny your fear, you deny your need for God. You deny your fear, you're going to continue to walk in your flesh. And the flesh will delude you into thinking you are what you're really not. Look at B. You must respond to fear by faith in God in order to manage it properly. You must respond to fear by faith in God in order to manage it properly. Man, I, I love this verse. Look at Second Chronicles 20. Start at verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Watch this. Jehoshaphat was afraid, but he didn't stop at his fear. Maybe, maybe that's where somebody needs to get right now. It's not about whether or not you're afraid. It's about whether you stop at your fear. You don't want to park at fear. You don't want to build a house at fear. You don't want to take up residence at fear. Jehoshaphat moved from fear to faith by doing what? Seeking the Lord. He sought help from the Lord. And it's interesting because this seeking of help from the Lord seems to have preceded any movement of any armed forces. In other words, he starts with, Lord, it's me, and I need you. It's, it's so powerful because when you read this, this verse, 
it's almost like Judah is moving as one person, right? I mean, the text says, proclaim the fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. Like everybody came. Everybody recognized that there was a crisis before them. And they knew they needed to respond to this crisis. Listen to me carefully, because I think this is powerful for somebody. They prayed and they fasted. Fasting is typically done as an act of desperation. It's like, you know you need God. And you may need him like never before. And now you have been driven to the point of fasting. Let me ask you a question. How bad do things have to become in order for you to set aside a day of fasting? How bad do things have to be in order for you to say, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to take off. And this is not a staycation day. This is not a mental health day. This is a spiritual focusing day. And I'm going to take tomorrow to fast and pray. See, for most of you, no matter how bad you think it is, it hasn't gotten desperate enough to drive you to your knees. Most of us have prayed, but we've never gotten to the place where we had to fast and pray. You're going to pray. You're not turning on the plate, but you're going to pray. How bad does it have to get to drive everyone to their knees to pray. If, if the goal of God is to draw people to him, how much room does God have to work with in order to draw people to him? No, no, forget people. Let's talk about you. You, you praying and you saying, Lord, I want to draw closer to you. How much permission are you giving God to do whatever it needs to be done in order to draw you closer to him. Because most of us only move close to God in the midst of catastrophe, calamity, crisis, death, sickness, financial woes. That's what drives us and draws us to God. The Bible says the people of Judah Sought God. When was the last time we saw our nation seek God? I mean, outside of this last election. When, when was the last? Because <laughs> 45 got some folk praying now for real. Woo, it's getting crazy and crazier. Look here. I don't know of a time in our country moved to pray recently like, like we did after 9-11, right? Man, folk weren't going to church. 9-11 came, everybody was in church. Folk fighting over separation of church and state before 9-11. Immediately after 9-11, people are standing in public places Politicians and the light naming the name of God, praying in the name of Jesus. 
But notice something. The further we get away from calamity, the further we get away from Christ. When was the last time you were driven to the altar to pray? Look at John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Underline that. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. James 1, 2. Let's read it together. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Circle the word when. Not if. When. Look at Ephesians 6. Let's start at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You might have heard somebody say, you better get ready. Get ready. Get ready. And then somebody said, I don't have to get ready. I stay ready. But, 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 but let's be honest. It, it's really hard to stay on red alert all the time. Right? Red alert stops being red alert when it's the always alert. You know, it's like when you type in all caps, you texting somebody, and for some of y'all, that means you're hollering. When you text, I know some of y'all are like, really? That's what that means? Yeah. So when folks say, why are you hollering? You say, I'm not hollering, I'm texting. That, that's why they say that, because when you, it's a texting etiquette, like when you type all caps, you're not you're not supposed to be mad when you text back, you know, all caps, right? You say that for excitement, exclamation, those kinds of things, right? I'm trying to help somebody out there. So uh, you, you can't stay at red alert all the time because then red alert loses its effectiveness, So I had an opportunity to go out to one of the fire department training sites out on the north side. And uh, they took a group of us, and, and we could get as involved as we wanted to. Some people just chose to observe me. I do me. So I, I want to put on a fire uniform. I want to go in the smoky building. You know what I mean? I want to do the whole thing. I want to scale. I want to come out on the wall on the rope. You know, I told the dude, I said, oh, man, it looks like fun, man. When I get out there, man, I'm going to turn upside down. He was like, yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, man, dude, you don't know me. I was like upside down. I was like, whoa, look at this. And I was trying to figure out how firefighters got dressed so fast. Right? Because, you know, when you're a kid, and for example, you watch like Batman, 
and they slide down the pole. They start off as Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson at the top, and then they end up down at the bottom, and they land, and they already dressed. I was like, man, how do they do that, man? You know, as a kid, I was like trying to figure out, man, how do they, they, they just slide out of their clothes and slide in? Don't act like I'm the only one that, see, y'all wrong, man. Y'all gonna leave me out there like I'm the only one that's trying to figure out how they did that. Some of y'all slid down the pole on your bed trying to figure out how that happened. So, so I asked them, I said, man, how do you guys get dressed so quick? And they told me, and when they told me and they showed me, it made so much sense because they don't get dressed like we get dressed. Take a look at this. Turn, turn the volume off. Turn the volume off. Yeah, see, he didn't stop and say, I wear my pants. My pants iron. What color belt I'm going to wear? What color shoes I'm going to wear? When the alarm goes off, they get the scurry, right? Now, he's putting on his full gear, right? If it's not a five-alarm fire or something, you know, they'll, they'll have their pants on and they're ready to go. I thought, I said, man, firefighters must walk around dressed, ready for a fire. And what I discovered was, they're not dressed ready for a fire. They're ready to get dressed for a fire. So they don't walk around all day in those heavy, fire-retardant, heat-producing pants and jacket. They, in this particular instance, these are volunteer firefighters, and they have to be dressed completely and ready to go within one minute. Within one minute. That's one minute whether you're walking around at the firehouse, eating something, or one minute if you're in the bed sleep. One minute or less. I want you all to do me a favor. Let's give the firefighters a great hand because they do a tremendous job. Really do. Now, I don't know if you noticed, because it was moving kind of quickly, but here's what I figured out. They don't put on their pants and then look for their boot and put on a boot and then get the other boot and put on. Everything is all laid out, waiting for them to step in it. Like, they I don't care. They had on their clothes, their pants, but if they're in the bed, they wake up. They don't go looking for their pants to put their pants on before they put on their fire pants. Man, they jump right in. Whoop, up, heading for the truck. Gone. If they know it's something, man, they putting on jackets, buttoning the inside buttons, latching the outside. They putting on the fire retardant. I mean, they are rolling because they understand that you have to be ready to get ready. Right? They live in a state of being ready to get ready. How long would it take you not to get dressed? How long would it take you to get ready for a spiritual battle? Here comes the devil. He's throwing punches, and you oh, I got to get to church on Sunday. It's like, boo-boo, it's Monday. 
You got to wait six days. Ooh, I got to get with the prayer warriors. You better learn how to say a prayer for yourself. Ooh, I sure need me a good hymn. I, I wish Brother Mark was here to sing one of them good old songs. No, no, you better learn how to sing a song for yourself. See, what these firefighters teach us is you don't have to be dressed in your uniform all day at high alert. You just got to be ready to put it on when you need it. When you look at Ephesians 6 and you start at verse, verse 13, taking up the whole armor of God, look at verse 14. Fasten on the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, ready to give the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. You got to know where your gear is. And, and can I tell you something else? They didn't just, that wasn't the first time they put on their uniform. They had to practice that. You had to put some time in. You're not going to know how to swing your sword of the spirit if you don't read your word. You have to practice so that when it comes time to get dressed, you are ready and it comes second nature. It's a part of you. And that's my prayer for you today, that we will learn how to pray our way to a win. Fear is real, but faith is even stronger than fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. And I pray now, God, that everything that has been said and everything that has been done has been pleasing in your sight. I pray, God, that good seed has found your people, that as we leave here today, we would be more committed to being people of faith and less of people of fear, that we will fight the good fight of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.